Jason Weiss is the assistant director of the Williams Research Center of the Historic New Orleans Collection and holds advanced degrees from Iowa State University and Louisiana State University and previously served as collections manager at Tulane University's Latin American Library. His subject specialties include the Carter history of Louisiana and the maritime and military history of the Gulf South, especially the Battle of New Orleans. He served as an editor of Charting Louisiana, 500 Years of Maps, published here by the Historic New Orleans Collection in 2003, and as a contributor to La Louisiane, to the Colony Process, and they taught American. Now, would you go listen to that in the language? Please, please join me in welcoming uh, Jason. Thanks very much. And uh, if my voice gives out or if I'm, I don't speak loudly enough, just uh, holler and I'll, I'll try to pick up the volume a little bit. Um, one of the really fun things I get to do um, working here at the Historic New Orleans Collection is from time to time I get to actually handle our incredible map collections and it's one of the really fun parts of my job. I'm a, I'm I wouldn't call myself a map expert. I am definitely a map enthusiast, so I'm hoping I can share a little of that enthusiasm with you all today. And uh, I'm going to start with just about the oldest map in our collection. The New World began to be revealed in European printed maps early in the 16th century. North America was nominally Spanish territory. And Spain tried to keep its explorations of the mainland secret, as was the habit of early colonial empires. Yet within 50 years, maps began to appear in Europe, depicting the fantastic region, which was then called La Florida. This 1513 woodcut from German mapmaker Martin Walzemuller shows the new world, including the early outline of the Gulf of Mexico and the Florida Peninsula. It was made at a time when publishers in the Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany uh, had begun a brisk trade in providing information about Spanish America to, uh, to Europe. The design for this map was cut into the side of a smooth wooden block, basically a woodcarver cut away all of the non-printing parts of the block and then it was applied, rolled with ink and applied to paper, much like a, a, a rubber stamp makes an image on paper. And the woodcut technique for map making flourished from about 1470 to the late 1500s, and it seems to have developed primarily in Northern Europe, where there was a strong tradition in wood carving, as well as a new trade in book printing. Movable type had been introduced to Europe at about, in about 1450. Um, most maps produced in this period were printed expressly for books, uh, and the woodcut was well suited for this purpose, because both the carved block and the um, metal type could be used simultaneously in the simple screw press that uh, Johann Gutenberg had devised. As the 16th century progressed, uh, woodcut maps gradually give way to a new technique uh, based on the Intaglio uh, technique of copper engraving. Um, this technique came to be favored by a new generation of cartographers because of its versatility and fineness of line um, that woodcut maps simply could not emulate. Um, this is a 1597 map, and it's an early engraving by a Flemish mapmaker named Cornel Whitfliet. Uh, it's a plate from Whitfliet's uh, Descriptionis Telemache Augmentum, which is the first atlas comprised of maps of America. You can see the delicately lettered 
names of rivers and place names, icons representing towns, but there's just a handful of interior details. Not a lot is known about the North American interior at this point. Um, beyond, uh, there's a basic outline of coasts. Um, Whitfleet's sources were probably an earlier Spanish manuscript based on accounts of Fernando de Soto's expedition in the 1530s and a subsequent printed map by Geronimo de Chavez published by Abraham Ortelius in 1584. This is an example of a copper engraved map by Nicolas Sanson d'Abbeville, uh, widely regarded as the founder of the French school of cartography. Both the geography and the art of engraving have become much more refined in 50 years. How was this printed? Basically, Sanson prepared a large, flat, polished sheet of copper into which he carved fine lines and grooves with a tool called a birin or a graver, um, until he achieved a detailed reverse image. Ink was applied to the plate and then wiped away, leaving ink in the incised lines. A dampened piece of paper was then laid over the inked plate, and both were cranked through a press, uh, much like you would squeeze clothes through an old-fashioned washing machine. Um, this forced the damp paper into the grooves where it would pick up the ink. And then when the sheet was carefully pulled away from the plate, uh, it bore a positive printed image of the map, which could then be hand-colored before the sheet would be bound into an atlas. Copper engraving permitted a much finer degree of detail, very useful for fine lettering of place names or rendering rivers or other details. It also allowed for increased artistry and purely decorative elements, such as title cartouches. Sansons is one of the most influential American maps of the 17th century, certainly the most advanced depiction of the continent at this time. Uh, it became a source map for most subsequent 17th century maps of this region. And it's amazing, really, how much geographical knowledge is, is gained in that first century. And when you consider how slowly people had to move in those days, just at the speed of wind and tide, uh, completely at the mercy of uh, whatever conditions they met. There were no roads into the interior. They, uh, they had to make their own way. And of course, news traveled very slowly. It could take weeks to get from point A to point B, sometimes months. Um, this is the first map uh, to depict the Great Lakes in a recognizable form, uh, minus their western edges, uh, and the first to name Lakes Ontario and Superior. There were some mistakes, such as the uh, east-west mountain chain uh, kind of ringing Florida, but he gets a lot right as well. Um, Sanson drew on diverse uh, reports uh, from Jesuit missionaries in Canada and Spanish accounts of the southwest. He shows a Mer Glacial uh, as the possible western outlet of a, of a water passage through the uh, interior of the continent in the north. And then there's a mythical land of Cibola um, that's also shown in the blank area. Um, this is, of course, one of the lost cities sought by the uh, conquistadores. Here's another map um, from Sanson, who was the royal geographer of France from 1630 to 1665, as well as Louis XIV's geography tutor. Um, this is a, a plate from an atlas originally produced in 1657, but here from the 1662 edition of Sanson's uh, L'Amérique and Plusieurs Cars Nouvelles, uh, which is the third atlas to focus solely on America. The northern Gulf Coast and Mississippi Valley are still largely unexplored at this point. Um, the east-west mountains persist, and this detail may influence later depictions of the lower courses of the Mississippi River. Um, what's most interesting about this map is the way that 
Sansone enlarges French claims in North America, uh, including reference to French Florida in the area of uh, Carolina and Georgia. And this, of course, is an echo of that brief French settlement in the 1560s. Um, the map correctly uh, names Lake Erie, but it moves at five or six degrees to the south. Um, and then Canada or New France extends down to what we would call Tennessee. <laughs> in other words, key areas of French exploration and trade are being enlarged and pushed aggressively against the borders of, of British and Spanish claims. And we'll see more examples of, of cartographic sort of propaganda today. Um, and this certainly wasn't restricted to French mapmakers, I think, as John showed us earlier. Uh, other European mapmakers worked to reconcile current geographical knowledge with the practical necessity of pleasing their royal patrons. Nicolas Sanson had established a mapmaking business that was carried on by his sons. Uh, the younger Sansons formed a partnership for a time with Alexis Hubert Gelot, uh, or Jaillot, who produced maps based largely on Sanson's geography. Um, this is an example that was originally published as a large two-sheet map in uh, 1674, uh, and thereafter it was issued for several decades with revisions. Uh, this follows the earlier Sansone maps in terms of its geography and place names pretty, pretty closely, um, showing California as an island uh, and unexplored western shores of the Great Lakes. Uh, later editions of this map, by the way, attach California to the mainland. Um, Ever since North America had been determined to be a separate continent standing between Europe and the Far East, a primary reason for European exploration, in the North at least, concerned the hypothetical existence of a cross-continental water passage through which shipping and trade could freely pass. The promise of an all or mostly water route across the continent persisted into the 19th century and was a principal object of Lewis and Clark's expedition after the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, here, Jayo's geography in the northwest follows that of Sansone, implying that a northern water passage leads to a, uh, a glacial sea in the blank space to the right of the tidal cartouche. Um, the French, who had, who had established their colony of uh, New France, or Canada, hoped that the St. Lawrence River in the Great Lakes might be the eastern part of a passage through the continent. And then when their early explorations showed that this was not the case, they turned their attention to the Mississippi River and its tributaries. Uh, in 1673, a year before this map was made, um, uh, Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet suggested the Missouri River as the most promising route to the west. <coughs> Jaillot's finely engraved tidal cartouche conveys to viewers in Europe just how exotic this new land was, uh, with Indians and strange species of animals worked into the design. Um, these exotic motifs were common to maps from, this, uh, from the 17th and 18th centuries and would have added much to their commercial appeal. And this one is just beautifully colored, especially the, the feathers. Very nice. In 1683, Belgian missionary and explorer Louis Hennepin published a continental map showing the upper courses of the Mississippi, which he referred to uh, by an earlier French name, the Colbert. Uh, Hennepin was the historian of LaSalle's first expedition in 1678 and the first European to describe Niagara Falls. He was sent by LaSalle in 1680 to find the source of the Mississippi River, whereupon he discovered the Falls of St. Anthony at the present site of Minneapolis. Um, this map is the earliest published source to name Louisiana, uh, named the Mississippi Valley uh, La Louisiane, um, having appeared only a year after LaSalle had claimed the territory in the name of Louis XIV. 
Uh, Hennepin's title cartouche is framed by religious and imperial French imagery, and he correctly identifies California here as a peninsula rather than an island, as was then common. Uh, significantly, there's no hint of mountains obstructing passage to the west. Um, he does make reference to mines in Mexico. Hennepin didn't actually travel much beyond the detailed parts that he shows in the map. Um, he displays some uncertainty regarding the lower course of the Mississippi, although he does um, give us a dotted line sort of projecting where it's going to enter the Gulf. The civil at De La Salle had wanted to establish himself, as John told us earlier, uh, at or near the mouth of the Mississippi in 1685, um, but an imperfect grasp of the region's geography or some navigational errors placed him too far west on the uh, modern Texas coast. His colony ultimately met with doom, but its brief establishment that far west would eventually be used as a pretext by the French to extend their claims to cover the entire northern Gulf Coast. Uh, Nicholas I's 1701 ornamental printed map, which we saw earlier today, uh, denotes these areas of French claim from the site of La Salle's uh, ill-fated colony in the west to Iberville's explorations further east. Defer was one of the leading publishers of maps in Paris uh, at this time, at the end of the 17th and early 18th century. Like Sanson, he was part of a publishing dynasty that began with his father, Antoine Defer, uh, and was carried on by two sons-in-law um, for most of the 18th century. Much of the information on this map came from Iberville's accounts, uh, including the correct lower course of the Mississippi River, um, which was called by that Indian name instead of Saint Louis or the Colbert, as earlier maps had shown it. Um, numerous Indian towns are located and named, uh, and interior waterways are likewise detailed. A note regarding Indian nations references their uh, different, often mutually incomprehensible languages. This map really dramatizes the successful French challenge to the Spanish hegemony over the northern Gulf Coast. Even though La Salle's attempt at a colony had failed, Iberville successfully established a French presence in the region uh, in 1699. Strangely, the scene uh, that frames the, the title cartouche uh, is La Salle's uh, execution or, or assassination at the hands of his own men. It seems like a strange choice to sort of illustrate this map, uh, blend of triumph and tragedy, if you will. French cartographers such as Nicolas Defer made good faith efforts to accurately depict the geography of the New World, but these men worked in Paris and had to reconcile uh, sometimes conflicting information uh, coming back from America. In 1705, Nicholas Defer published this curious printed map that pushes the Mississippi River far to the west uh, to enter the Gulf at or near Matagorda Bay, Texas, even though he had earlier presented a, a more correct placement. Um, some scholars believe that Defer intentionally moved both LaSalle's explorations and the lower Mississippi River further west in an effort to position French territory closer to silver mines in New Spain. Um, whatever the case, this is an intensely political map uh, done for Defer's royal patron, uh, Le Grand Dauphin, uh, Louis of France, uh, the eldest son of uh, Louis XIV. Um, there are certainly useful notes regarding Indians, explorations, forts, waterways, um, but Defer certainly takes liberties with the geography. Um, he moves the uh, Ohio River, or what he calls the Belle Riviere, uh, far to the south. Um, and likewise, uh, Canada and New France extends far to the 
the South and the West, into Texas, basically. Um, and he crowds the British colonies to a very small section of the Atlantic seaboard. So he's grabbing the whole interior of the North American continent um, for France. And uh, you could think of this map, I guess, as an example of uh, uh, cartographic conquest. Um, even, he refers even to Carolina by Sanson's own label, uh, uh, Floride Francois. Um, so the implication is that France controls all of this territory when, of course, in, in truth, they only controlled small parts of, of the North and the South, and it was a tenuous hold of that. So where did Defer's strange geography come from? Um, some of it may have been done for uh, propaganda or patronage, uh, but it's also true that there were different versions of reality filtering back to Europe from the Americas. Um, this is an earlier manuscript map from Jean-Baptiste Francolin. He was a, a hydrographer to Louis XIV, uh, who worked under various governors in Canada mostly, and he was concerned with charting the St. Louis or the uh, uh, St. Lawrence Seaway and the Great Lakes. And, um, this is a map that includes the lower Mississippi, and, and like the fur, he moves it very far to the west. It takes a big jog. Um, why is this? Uh, maybe it was an attempt to vindicate LaSalle's belief that the Mississippi actually did enter the Gulf in Texas, or maybe he thought that those mountains that Sanson had shown were, were still there, and he had to get the river around them some kind of way. Um, Francoline's maps were never printed or widely available. This particular manuscript is held by the Service Historique de la Marine in France. Um, like the first 1705 map, Francoline shows the vastness of French claims in North America, even if those claims were somewhat overstated. Um, another example of curious early geography from a French source came from the Baron Lahontan, who explored the upper Mississippi Valley in the late 17th century. This is a published map, a uh, plate in his popular 1703 memoir in, in which he details the explorations in Canada from 1683 to 1692. And it gives Lahontan's version of a so-called Long River, a tributary to the Mississippi um, that was well north of the Missouri River. Maybe some historians think this may be the Minnesota River or something like that. Um, the Long River's mountain headwaters are shown to be directly adjacent um, to the source of a westward flowing river um, that goes and eventually empties into a great salt lake, which in turn may have drained into the Pacific Ocean. Um, there's a little line in fleur-de-lis that marks the westward extent of, of Baron Lahontan's personal travels. Um, the portion farther west is allegedly based on a deerskin Indian original that was shown to him. Um, and this, of course, was exciting news to Europeans. Um, Europeans still hoped for an all or mostly water route to the west. Uh, and according to Lahontan, one could paddle up this uh, river flowing from the west up to its headwaters and then just portage or traverse down to this stream and just drop right down. Whoops, what happened here? There we go. Uh, you could just drop right down to the Pacific as easy as you please. Um, and of course, as we now know, this was sheer fantasy. Uh, Lahontan's map is full of dubious details, uh, like an Indian war canoe he claimed to have seen paddled by 80 Indian warriors. Um, the question is whether Lahontan created a deliberate fiction. E even though the geography depicted here never existed in reality, um, it's still perhaps reflective of honest attempts at Indian-European communication where certain details were lost in translation. Whatever the case, 
um, this map of the Western lands and that supposed link to the Pacific Ocean drew a number of European cartographers to perpetuate this enticing geographical fiction. Uh, and this is an example um, from uh, British publishers, John Senex and John Maxwell, um, that came out a few years later. Um, and it incorporates Lahontan's information as if it's correct, just in case it's useful to the users of their map. And then you see that just copied it, essentially. And variations of this conjectural geography get handed down, different versions of it, uh, all the way to Lewis and Clark's time. Uh, and they finally disprove that uh, this uh, westward passage, uh, water passage, is even possible. And to be fair, Senex offered Lahontan's geography with a caveat uh, in the form of this note right above the feature. Um, and I'll read it off for you. Um, the Long River, or Dead River, was discovered lately by the Baron Lahontan as far as marked on the map. That which is more to the westward was drawn by the savages of the nation of Nasataris on deerskin. Unless the Baron Lahontan has invented these things, which is hard to resolve, he being the only person that has traveled into these vast countries. That's a little caveat. Again, we get back to the difficulties faced by European cartographers who had to rely on secondhand information and sometimes contradictory reports coming back from America. And this is a map that appeared the same year as Lahontan's memoir. Um, it was created in Paris by Guillaume de Lille, um, based on information from Iberville and from a captured Spanish manuscript map. Um, despite some inaccuracies, it shows a huge area with uh, remarkable detail. Uh, most notable is the accurate course of the lower course of the Mississippi River to the Gulf, but there's also considerable effort to locate and name the various Indian tribes and nations uh, and the waterways on which their settlements uh, were located. And this information was enormously important and useful to colonial administrators, for example, uh, especially those who were on the ground in France's American dominions, uh, also possibly to traders who were plying those waterways. Um, Delisle was the son of geographer and historian Claude Delisle, um, and he went on to carefully apply scientific principles to map making. Uh, he was elected uh, a member of the Royal Academy of Sciences the year before this map was created, uh, and he would eventually be recognized as the premier royal geographer of France. Uh, Delisle was widely copied by other map makers, uh, and details from the previous map shown, the 1710 uh, Senex and Maxwell map of North America, had copied details from, from this map. Um, very nice map. Uh, like Guillaume de Lille, Nicolas de Fer worked in Paris. Uh, he relied on various primary accounts coming back from America. And this is a splendid two-sheet continental map. Uh, it's kind of strange. It has an inset of the Gulf Coast uh, above it, which is kind of confusing visually. Um, but this map was, was created uh, in 1718 to commemorate the recent establishment of the Company of the West, later known as the Company of the Indies. Uh, and you can see the arms of the company are, are at the top of the map. Um, Defer credits details from the, the memoirs of La Salle, Hennepin, Tonti, Lahontan, Joliet, Le Maire, people who were there on the scene in the New World. Um, but he probably also borrowed from Delisle's 1703 map and other printed sources. Um, Indians figure very prominently in the title cartouche, uh, hunting but also being educated by French missionaries, uh, trained out of their savage ways. Um, and they also appear as tiny figures all over this map. And this map is actually one of my favorites in our collection. 
Um, there's notes and legends all over it um, showing trade routes between French and British uh, colonial possessions, Indian nations, um, basically describing the sites that few map consumers back in Europe could ever hope to see firsthand. Um, Defer likely borrowed some details from Delisle, but there's also some residual detail from Sanson, such as the note claiming that the Florida Peninsula was an island or extension of French Louisiana by virtue of prior French colonization of a part of Carolina. Um, so he completely dismisses uh, uh, Spanish claims on Florida and just kind of puts one in the eye of those uh, St. Augustine uh, people who uh, had, had invaded the French colony. Um, right or wrong, um, this rare printed map is just alive with fun details. I mean, we could really spend all day looking at this. Um, there's Indians hunting with bows and even pitchforks. Uh, there's explorers and canoes. There's, a, a, there's something like a large horned chicken roaming the yeah. Illinois country. <laughs> and this is my favorite, the uh, alligator up in central Minnesota. <laughs> and this failure to differentiate between variable climates and topographies from north to south would persist into the years immediately following the Louisiana Purchase when the entire you know, commentators would just rhapsodically describe the whole Louisiana Purchase as this vast, fertile garden. Um, so in 1718, Guillaume de Lille creates what would become the most important and influential map of the North American interior, certainly of the 18th century. Um, this was first made as a separate map for the Company of the West, and a note following the title uh, makes clear that Delisle drew extensively from Father Lemaire's uh, memoirs. He credits Lemaire up there. Um, Lemaire compiled memoirs between 1706 and 1718. Um, Lemaire, if you don't know, was the chaplain of the fort at, at Mobile. And he carried on a regular correspondence with one of the chaplains at Versailles, uh, and that is how Lemaire's uh, comments and observations and even maps that he drew came to the attention of the French court and then eventually to, to the Delilles. Um, Guillaume Delisle critically examined all of the available sources, reconciling them with uh, astronomically determined latitudes and longitudes to create the most accurate picture of the Mississippi Valley that was then available. Um, he also depicted the roots of early explorers in the region. I think he was the first... Uh, map maker to show DeSoto's uh, or, or to show DeSoto's route, but he also shows roots of other explorers uh, like Saint-Denis uh, into Spanish territory. Um, most significantly, this map extends French domination from the western slopes of the Appalachians all the way to the eastern slopes of the Rockies. So basically, the entire continental interior is, is French as far as Delisle is concerned. Um, Delisle does show the British colonies, but he added a note um, that Carolina was originally discovered, founded, and named by the French in honor of Charles IX. Uh, and this note from an official geographer of France uh, really enraged British officials, really, really ticked them off. Um, um, they saw Delisle's map as an aggressive cartographic encroachment upon their dominions in America. Uh, Governor William Burnett of New York wrote the following note to the British Board of Trade in 1720. Uh, I observe in the last maps published at Paris with royal permission by Mr. Delisle in 1718 of Louisiana and part of Canada that they are making new encroachments on the king's territories from what they pretended to in a former map published by the same author in 1703. In other words, that 1703 map that I showed you a little while ago does not have the, uh, the note about Carolina, 
and then this one does, and he's asking me, you know, what's up with that? Um, Delisle's original 18, uh, 1718 map omitted New Orleans, which was established that year. Um, this is a detail from his map, and it shows the area of the city's establishment um, between the river and Lake Pontchartrain, as well as an upriver uh, settlement of homeless Indians. Uh, and this map was a copper plate engraving, and here we can see one of the advantages of this map making technique. Um, although it's colored differently, the other detail is the same area of Delisle's map, but in its second or revised state. Um, when Delisle received word in Paris that La Nouvelle Orléans had been established, um, he simply buffed out this small portion of the copper engraving plate, and then he re-engraved it to include the new information. Um, map maker, uh, and, and he could go on to strike off many, many more copies of, of his map. Uh, map makers who drew pen and ink manuscripts or who printed maps via the old woodcut technique uh, had to essentially redo the entire map whenever, whenever substantial alterations were necessary or new data had to be incorporated. Uh, in addition to the ease of correction, maps printed from metal plates could be larger than woodcuts and could therefore include more geographical and decorative detail. Um, the durability of metal printing plates ultimately made maps more widely available and at lower prices uh, since more copies could be printed per engraved plate. Um, there are four known states of this map, of Delisle's map, um, which kind of testifies to its long publishing life. Um, but its importance is also evident in the number of, of imitations uh, from other map makers. Um, this is a map that was published in London, again by our friend John Senex, uh, in 1721. And it's been described as the most impudent plagiarism. Um, it's really just a copy and translation of Delisle's 1718 map. Um, and interestingly, nowhere does Senex credit uh, Delisle as his source. Both Delisle and Senex show Louisiana extending all the way from the Appalachians to the Rockies. Um, in the top left corner, you can see a river passing through a gap in the mountains. And there's a note uh, also translated directly from Delisle um, that says, the Indians say that near this place, the Spaniards ford the river on horseback, uh, going to treat with some Indians lying to the northwest once they bring yellow iron, as they call it, um, probably gold. Um, and this is, I, I guess, kind of an echo of the old Spanish conquistador uh, stories of a lost city of gold still appearing in, in the margins of maps. Um, Senex keeps most of Delisle's notations intact, um, simply translating them for a British audience. And I, I love this note, uh, wandering Indians and maps. Wouldn't it be great if maps um, still had notes like this? <laughs> you know, if you're driving through Beaumont, Texas at 11 o'clock at night, you know, it'll keep you wide awake. <laughs> Louisiana was a great source of fascination for British as well as continental European map consumers. Uh, while Senex was busy plagiarizing his information from Delisle, uh, the so-called Mississippi bubble grew and finally burst as speculation and shares of the French Company of the Indies spiraled out of control. It's likely that there was a keen interest in investing in this French company on the parts of prospective British investors, and Senex was simply cashing in on the demand for information by those who couldn't or wouldn't read French. A hint that this may be the case can be found in Senex's uh, map's lower right corner. In place of Delisle's inset map of the northern Gulf Coast, Senex engraved a very decorative title cartouche, and we see that his map is dedicated to William Law of Lauriston, 
Um, this is the father of the famed John Law, um, a Scottish financier who caused the word millionaire to be coined in France after the initial success of his Banque Generale and his company, the Indy Stocks. Um, one last thing, uh, Senex did not actually plagiarize all of Delisle's notes. Um, he very pointedly omitted the one about Carolina being discovered and named by the French. <laughs> this is another Delisle der derivative um, produced in 1720 by Christoph Weigel. Um, apparently, <clears throat> for prospective German-speaking investors in the Company of the Indies, uh, it was accompanied by a separate printed sheet uh, with information about the company in the French colonies of Louisiana and Canada. Um, the valuation of company shares is, ext is extensively discussed, um, along with procedures for purchasing and exchanging shares. And the map's title cartouche actually incorporates a scene of two European men meeting at the base of a ruined column. Um, a paper share in the Company of the Indies is being exchanged for a chest full of metal coins. Um, France was trying some very dynamic uh, monetary policies at this time, and, and uh, the um, paper banknotes were being substituted for, for metal coins, uh, among other things. Um, at least uh, Weigel does credit Delisle as his source. Uh, Gililimus Insulano uh, appears here in Latin, if I can find it. Oh, there he is. Um, uh, and he notes, of course, that he has royal permission to uh, to create the map. The Company of the Indies commissioned a number of maps and views promoting its Louisiana colony in this period, though it's likely that other publishers fed the demand for information as well. Um, this is an early 1720s coastal view uh, that's often attributed to Francois Chirot, and it tells us quite a lot. It presents the basic geography of the northern Gulf Coast with, key, with points of interest keyed um, below the image. Um, the new colonial capital, New Orleans, is rendered as a walled city with, with grand towers such as you would see in Europe, it, even though in reality at this time it was little more than a clearing in the woods and just a few huts. Um, the city of New Orleans is quite prominent, though it's on the wrong side of Lake, Lake Pontchartrain uh, and practically right on top of Biloxi. Um, Chiro's ethnographic details are, are somewhat dubious as well. You have, again, the Indians hunting with pitchforks, um, marauding natives brandishing bows and arrows, the, the usual thing. Uh, and then mountains also loom in the distance, um, possibly a remnant of Sanson's chains of, of mountains that girdled Florida. Um, it's a very romantic view. But the point here is that this map's audience um, probably possessed too little information to really evaluate the information, uh, the accuracy of its presentation. And that idea is underscored by another very curious print, also attributed to Chirot, that likewise made the rounds uh, in the 1720s. Uh, while depicting the same points of reference, it's essentially a reverse print, uh, a mirrored image that confuses East with West. Um, whether Chirot was responsible for this or someone else simply pirated his view, we're not able to say. Um, it does demonstrate, however, that there was a huge and lucrative trade in printed maps and views of Louisiana at a time that shares in the Company of the Indies were also in huge demand. Um, people wanted to invest in the New World, and they needed information about this far-flung colony of Louisiana. Printers and publishers profited from this demand, uh, sometimes by way of wildly inaccurate or unreliable products. Again, very few people in Europe who saw this print, or scores of printed maps and views like it, 
could have questioned the information presented. Dubious cartographic interpretations of America were not confined to French publishers, however, since practically every other European power with American colonies uh, printed equally imaginative New World renderings for political, social, or commercial reasons. <clears throat> map making was a business as well as an art. Map, map makers like Guillaume de Lille staked their business on their reputations for accuracy and scientific rigor. And de Lille's title as geographer of the king uh, certainly lent an air of respectability and gave a commercial advantage as well. Uh, other map makers had to grab their audiences in creative ways. Uh, in 1719, cartographer and publisher Henri Chatelain created this wonderful engraved map on two sheets, uh, one of the most elaborately engraved and embellished maps of the Western Hemisphere that uh, was ever created. Um, its title translates thus, uh, a very curious map of the South Sea, which contains quite useful notes and news not only about the ports and islands of this sea. And it is indeed packed with information. Um, and I really love the, the decorative details of this map. Um, we have minutely engraved scenes of native costumes, flora and fauna, uh, navigational routes, uh, copious notes and textual descriptions uh, embracing both North and South America. Um, we can see uh, here an Aztec sacrifice, uh, silver mines, uh, Indians dancing with torches, uh, farmers planting yams, all kinds of great stuff. Um, this is actually one of my favorite details. Um, you see the hunters, and then you see an army of beavers constructing a dam. And they're actually, they're actually walking upright and carrying the sticks over their shoulders. Maps and travel accounts published throughout the 17th and 18th centuries added many colorful examples to the European perception that this vast American wilderness held strange and wonderful surprises. Uh, American explorers uh, half ex believed in the 19th century that they would encounter unicorns and volcanoes and Welsh Indians and other marvels. Um, despite the beauty and inventiveness of Chatelaine's decorative elements, um, the geography is a bit anachronistic. Uh, California has once again been split off from the mainland, <coughs> and the Mississippi River is shunted away to the west. Chatelaine also masks some uncertainty about the Northwest with decorative medallions celebrating early explorers. Um, nevertheless, this map contains an extraordinary amount of information uh, that would have been useful to an 18th century buyer of this map, and it's certainly still fun to, to look at today in the 21st century. Um, North America continued to be explored through the 18th century, and geographical depictions became more and more refined as information continued to come back uh, from American explorations. And this is a fine mid-century example from Gilles Robert de Vogondi, um, who with his son Didier published one of the more important atlases of the 18th century, the Atlas Universel in 1757. Um, the Roberts de Vogondi were actually descended from Nicolas Sanson d'Abbeville uh, through Sanson's grandson, Pierre Moulard Sanson. Uh, and they apparently inherited a great deal of Sanson's geographical research, with, which uh, informed parts of their new atlas. And this map fills in some of the details about the Northwest that were missing from earlier maps. Um, the inset shows a large sea of the West and a continuing water route from Hudson's Bay um, to the Pacific Ocean. It's kind of, you just kind of track it all through there. Um, and a note below the image uh, 
credits this new intelligence to the recent explorations up the Pacific coast by the Spanish Navy. Um, the Roberts, the Burgundy were apparently gentlemen and they did credit their, their sources. Um, one of the more celebrated French geographers of the mid-18th century was Jean-Baptiste Danville, uh, who spent his life studying geography. Apparently he made his first map when he was like 12 years old. <clears throat> and he amassed a, a huge collection of maps uh, that were purchased by Louis XVI shortly before Danville's death in 1782. Um, this is a printed map um, based on a 1732 manuscript, and uh, Danville greatly improved the standards of map data, the presentation of map data, uh, and apparently disdained ornament on his maps. Uh, all of his creative energies went to establishing exact latitudes and longitudes and uh, setting down the exact courses of, of rivers. Uh, and he tended to leave the unknown areas uh, blank, uh, and he would note doubtful information as such. Um, compared to the lavish maps of his predecessors, Donville's maps looked practically empty. Um, but he was very well regarded by his fellow scientific geographers. Uh, in fact, one of the craters on the moon is named after him. Um, this map would be copied 10 years later by Spanish mapmaker Tomas Lopez de Machucha. Um, and I believe it's also the earliest uh, printed map that, that mentions Barataria. It's the earliest printed map I've seen that mentions Barataria. Um, Jacques Nicolas Belain was one of the more prolific French map makers of this period. Um, he was an extremely industrious hydrographer in the uh, French office of the Marine, uh, meaning he was especially concerned with charting coasts and waterways. Uh, this is an interesting map <clears throat> from 1763 that resurrects an earlier French name for the Mississippi River, the, the River St. Louis. Uh, here Belain shows the nexus of the St. Louis or Missouri and the, the Washita and Red Rivers. Uh, showing the course of the latter as far as Natchitoches, which is also shown uh, in a detailed uh, inset chart. And uh, Belain also gives additional information about the Red River, and it's kind of fun, um, and I'll translate for you. Um, the Red River is quite difficult to ascend, but in high water it's completely navigable. Along its edges there are lakes and many wetlands. This river is full of crocodiles and rich in fish. Its shores are abundant in wild animals such as cows, bears, tigers, wolves, stags, and roe deer. There are also quantities of game, such as turkeys, uh, oyes, I don't know what oyes are, uh, Canada geese, swans, and assorted ducks, all kinds of trees with wild fruit and vines with bear, muskets, and other grapes. In other words, you could go up the Red River and you weren't going to starve. This is very useful information to prospective settlers moving in that direction. In addition to coastal and river charts, Belain's atlases included some city plans, uh, such as this plan of New Orleans in 1764. Uh, it's a fairly accurate map that shows the built-up extent of the city. Um, we can see the partial moat that, that was abandoned in the 1730s after the Natchez Revolt. Um, Belain was striving for accuracy, and other mapmakers didn't always do that. Um, we have this example. It's a manuscript from our collection by a king's engineer named Thierry. Um, it's kind of a, a, a bird's eye view um, that shows an idealized version of New Orleans. Um, the major landmarks are correctly identified in place uh, for the most part, but Thierry went on from there to cartographically develop the city, uh, erecting scores of buildings where none really existed in fact. And he made everything look very tidy and regular in appearance, uh, perhaps in keeping with the 
typical 18th century city plan. And whether he did this out of personal fastidious or some other motive is anyone's guess. Um, Thierry also eliminates the partial mode, just keeps it very tidy looking. While France lost its mainland American possessions in the 1760s, ceding Louisiana to Spain and losing the rest to Great Britain after the disastrous Seven Years' War known in America as the French and Indian War. Um, this is a printed map uh, by Belain, and it's colored to show North America as it was partitioned by colonial powers in 1763 in the Treaty of Paris. Spanish Louisiana lies to the west of the Mississippi, while British America sprawls to the east, encompassing Canada and Florida. The broad Louisiana, shown by Delisle, Defer, and other French cartographers, has here been divided by war and diplomacy, even though Belain had printed the old names and borders. So though France has lost its, its American colonies and its Gulf Coast colony, um, French mapmakers did continue to chart the region. Uh, along with other areas of the world. And this is a fine example of a coast chart that was commissioned by Antoine de Sartine, uh, who was the Secretary of State for the Navy under Louis XVI. Um, what we see here is uh, a, basically a painstakingly assembled pictorial representation of data uh, laboriously compiled by probably hundreds of people, um, from sailors measuring water depths and currents with chains and log lines, uh, to officers on deck taking solar, lunar, and star sightings uh, and using trigonometry to calculate their positions on the Earth's surface. Uh, a mechanical solution for determining longitude at sea had been developed in Great Britain, um, but marine chronometers were, were very scarce and expensive still when this map was made. Uh, and navigators still had to know how to use lunar distance tables and other measures. Uh, GPS, of course, was a few years away at this point. <laughs> This is an interesting atlas plate from uh, Ribaubert Bonnet, who succeeded Jacques Belain as a hydrographer to the French Marine Office. By this time, uh, the United States has been established uh, with, of course, the assistance of France. Um, but the Trans-Appalachian West that is claimed by the Young Republic is here called by its old French name of Louisiana. Um, up to the western slopes of the Appalachians, just as had been depicted by Delisle almost 70 years earlier. And this is another plate from the same Bonnet Atlas that shows what is arguably France's most uh, lucrative colony in the Americas, uh, Saint-Domingue, shortly before it would be convulsed by revolution. Um, and I really, you know, this is one of those jewels that sometimes you encounter as you flip through map collections, and then there's just this gorgeous map that just jumps out at you. Uh, so I wanted to show it today. Um, it's been beautifully hand-colored. Uh, Many map colors, uh, publishers had colorists on their staff uh, who would hand tint the maps soon after the sheets had been printed and pulled off the plate, um, and before those sheets would be trimmed and bound into atlas volumes. Um, color could be used to make political borders or topographical details clearer, uh, or to add flair to decorative elements such as title cartouches. Not all engraved maps were colored, and when they were, there was often some artistic variation that could make two maps printed from the exact same plate look very different. This is an uncolored uh, engraved chart of the Mississippi River that was published in Henri Victor Collot's uh, Journey in North America in 1826. Um, Collot had reconnoitered the Mississippi and Ohio rivers in the 1790s, uh, and then Paris engraver and cartographer Ambroise uh, Tardieu drew and engraved the maps uh, in 1805 
Um, and I believe they were actually printed um, and ready to be bound and, and issued, but then Collot died and for complex reason, reasons the uh, publication was delayed um, for two decades. Um, Tardieu's work is known for its beauty and its accuracy as well as for its depth of detail. Um, his most important work is probably his version of John Aerosmith's large format map of America um, that was published in 1806. Tardieu died in 1841. French-born Bartholomew Lafon's 1806 printed map of the territory of Orleans, is, uh, which includes modern Louisiana, is one of the earliest comprehensive maps of any state or territory in the U.S. And here you'll see um, the separate um, West Florida, Spanish West Florida, which is not included in the territory of Orleans. Uh, and you see that the western boundary of Louisiana is still sort of uh, uh, unresolved at this point. So Lafon just solves the problem of depicting it by just kind of leaving it blank and then putting this large cartouche over it. Um, Lafon's a, a really interesting character. Um, he later served as a military engineer in the U.S. Army at the time of the War of 1812. And in fact, one of the really neat things in our collection is a manuscript atlas of plans and plans of fortifications uh, all around the Gulf South uh, from the time of the War of 1812. It's a beautiful manuscript atlas. Um, and here, uh, in addition to showing the sculpted alluvial topography of the Gulf Coast, the phone provides a table of map coordinates to accurately fix the locations of rivers, towns, and other features shown on his map. Um, and here we have uh, a colored engraved map uh, by a known French map maker. I just wanted to show it because it, it very clearly shows the manifest destiny of former French uh, possessions in North America. It clearly shows the stages of partition and expansion. I think it's a lovely and very simple map. And this is my last map, and it brings us full circle in a way. Um, Victor Lavasseur was an engineer and cartographer of 19th century France, and his maps are somewhat reminiscent of the earlier 17th and 18th century examples that I showed earlier uh, in that they often have decorative margins showing scenery, uh, peoples, and trade goods of the areas that he mapped. Uh, Levasseur also tended to present tables of useful statistical data um, with his work. Um, his work is, is, is felt to represent some of the last great decorative atlases of the 19th century. Uh, and these apparently are still commonly found in French public libraries and town halls. Um, today I can only show just a handful of maps, mostly from our collection. Uh, if you're interested, you can go onto our website, www.hnoc.org, uh, and look at our online catalog, which you can find under Collections and Research. Um, we are cataloging all of our maps. We've attached a lot of images of maps so you can, you can see them directly. Um, and most of those records will also have information about the cartographers that I've discussed today. Um, it's been a privilege to talk to you today. I, I hope you enjoyed the talk.
the northern hemisphere. Northern, I think so. Or, no, or is it western? Yeah, it's northern. It is northern. I imagine it probably contributed to, to the concept of how territory was held or not held. Um, and it was certainly seen by government policy makers, you know, different quote unquote unfair uh, map depictions were, were seen as acts of aggression, almost diplomatic aggression. Uh, and certainly when you had notes from someone who's recognized as the official geographer of the king of France, if he puts this note into a map, uh, it, it, it's a provocation. It's a problem. On one of the first maps, I think, uh, by Delisle that you showed, I noticed that in the cartouche, the king's name was crossed out twice. Any idea why this was? I, I don't. It, it, Someone had a beef with the king? Or? <laughs> I'd have to go back and look at it. It could be that the plate was damaged. Uh, or a later owner of that map had a, had a beef with the king. It's hard to say. Thank you, Jared. Oh, sorry, what question here? You know, in some of the earlier maps that were depicted, the Mississippi River was shown mainly from the north section. The lower section was just an either not a line or nothing. What was the reason for that? Did they actually explore it from the north south? Um, yes, he... he, he he mentions that one of the earlier maps did not show the entire course of the Mississippi River. It just ended, uh, and, and I believe that's, that's Hennepin's map. Um, and I think the reason he didn't show the entire course is that he did not personally go all of the way. He just showed the areas that he personally saw uh, and was able to, to vouch for. Um, he did put that dotted line in there, perhaps based on hearsay accounts from, from LaSalle or other sources. Profoundly. Uh, how, how much did Lewis, the question is, how much did Lewis and Clark's expedition after the Louisiana Purchase uh, affect the, I guess, depictions of the geography of the West? And the answer is that it perfected it profoundly. Um, there were a great many misconceptions about the Western geography, uh, including the uh, configuration of the, of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, on a lot of maps, including some early uh, British and American maps, the Rocky Mountains appear as a single chain of mountains uh, in the west. And Lewis and Clark's expedition was able to show that, no, actually there's, there's series of ranges that all have to be traversed, meaning that a, a, a water route would just be completely impractical. But yeah, they produced uh, a very detailed map of the, of the western lands uh, after their expedition that profoundly affects subsequent depictions of the west. Thank you again, Jason, and we look forward to seeing you again at 2 o'clock when we resume.